Hello, and welcome back to Dostoevsky and Russian Nihilism. Last time we were talking about Notes from Underground, this time we're still talking about Notes from Underground. But now we are talking about the second half of Notes from Underground, specifically apropos of the wet snow, the narrative section that our mysterious underground man narrator decides to regale us with as an explanation for his behavior, and apparently because it's just bothering him all of the time. Um... Like I said in the last lecture, the relationship between these two is kind of strange. Um, like, obviously, the first half of Notes from Underground, the underground section that we talked about last time, is, is probably the much more widely discussed, the much more widely celebrated. Um, it's obviously philosophical. It demonstrates this sort of stylistic... Uh, stylistic panache that the second half really lacks um and there's there's deliberate intention behind this like as much as you know many would consider that like the first half represents what Dostoevsky really believes um and I to some degree agree just with a lot of caveats attached to that um the second half is meant to be more of a deliberate trip into 1840s Russian literature um, like, if in fact the underground man as we have him here in the underground section is supposed to represent and lampoon the likes of Chernyshevsky on the one hand, but kind of more attach Chernyshevsky and his radicals to the, the nihilists like Pisarev, um, we should remark that the the second section, the apropos of the wet snow, re like removes the underground man from his 1860s underground world and instead locates him right smack in 1840s Russian literature. Um, in a lot of ways, I want to emphasize, like as much as we are going to see that Dostoevsky is still like razor sharp giving us this critique and, and satirization of Chernyshevsky, all of the instances, all of these scenes that we see here are straight out of 1840s literature. And the narrator is aware of this. Like, he draws attention to it at some times. Um, so to say that this section is somehow less important or somehow less representative is to kind of miss the point of both the second section and its, you know, inclusion with the first. Um, these are two halves of the same coin for Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky can see this through line running all the way from the romantic 1840s to the nihilists of the present day, a line that runs right through Chernyshevsky, and if anything, Chernyshevsky's naivete in failing to see this line is why Dostoevsky is so worked up in the first place. Dostoevsky has kind of put it all together here, and it is this like, this recognition, this connection between the literary world of the 1840s, um, the intellectual materialism of, of the likes of Chernyshevsky, but also the, the radical nihilism, the sort of aggressive, violent tendencies of, of the Russian youth in the 1860s, all of this to Dostoevsky is connected. He's worked out the, the equation that connects all of these things together. And this is going to be the foundational understanding of the world that informs literally all of his later novels. Um, Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, Demons, uh, Brothers Karamazov, even The Adolescent to some degree are all informed by this relationship, by this revelation. Um, they are all with varying degrees of development, expansions on this idea. 
um, or at least this idea of you know how the ideology works together with the the contemporary situation. Like obviously these books have a lot more going on in most cases. Um, but the great thing about Notes from Underground is that it is such a wonderful case study. That it is kind of like all of Dostoevsky's major themes, all of Dostoevsky's major ideas, kind of compressed here, presented in a very digestible form, um, and which will be only expanded upon in, in uh, the later works as well as you know given other things to think about and other things to to add on to this um so with that in mind i want to start where dostoevsky starts i want to start with the poem um so with apropos of the west wet snow we should note like right off the bat just the very title of this section apropos of the wet snow is in all likelihood an invocation um, many of the Russian romantic writers very much talked about this wet snow whenever they would find themselves talking about, uh, Petersburg. Um, this was apparently just a feature of Petersburg life, and having lived in a city during winter time, yeah, I can see that. Because the sort of character of, of wet snow is that it is kind of dirty, it's, it's kind of gross, it, it doesn't look pristine the way that snow often does. Like, I've lived in the countryside and I've seen snow blow around and occasionally it's just gorgeous, like it shines in the sunlight. Um, or it, you know, freezes into fascinating patterns. But in the city, the snow usually gets dirty real fast, for one thing. But also just, I don't know whether it's because of the layout or because of, you know, Petersburg's climate or whatever. Um, or just, you know, the fact that, like, you covered a whole bunch of land with people and stone and concrete and I don't even know. Um, the snow doesn't seem pretty, and it's not meant to be pretty here. Like, it is... It's gross. It's not post-slush, like post-people stepping on it, you know, with the occasional, like, dog pee yellow circle in it, the way that just snow in the city inevitably ends up looking. Um, but we are talking about just, like, gross snow. Snow that is, on the one hand, completely unromantic, unnatural, but at the same time a snow that has a romantic quality simply because it is distinct. It is unique. It is something typical of the city, and you can take the sort of depressing or banal uh, quality of this snow and turn it into something elevated. And I think that's intentional on Dostoevsky's part. Like, this particular metaphor is not only so typical of the 1840s Russian world, but it, all, it is also typical of like the sort of greater symbolic context here our underground man is like the wet snow something that could have been beautiful something that could have been pretty that has been instead perverted um it is something that is both aware of its banality and also sort of elevating itself artificially into something romantic um, now, the poem comes from N.A. Nekrasov, as we're told. Um, and I'm not going to read the poem because, weirdly enough, and possibly deliberately, the kind of meat of the poem isn't present here. Like, we get the sense of it, when from out of error's darkness with a word both sure and ardent, I had drawn the fallen soul, and you, filled with deepest torment, cursed the vice that had ensnared you, and so doing wrung your hands. Like, we get the image of this fallen person who feels regret over their fallenness, but Nekrasov's poem is quite literally about the same kind of thing that we're seeing happen in this section. It's about a fallen woman, a prostitute who is reformed. Um, and Dostoevsky refers to this poem several times throughout Apropos of the Wet Snow. Um, and it's worth noting from 
you know, our polemical 1860s and 1840s Russian, you know, political slash literary world, that Nekrasov is both the classic example of the Romantic poet, um, as well as being the editor of the contemporary. Um, Dostoevsky is pointing directly to the, con the most obvious connection between these two schools of thought. The literal man who has carried on his ideology from the 1840s to the 1860s. And we should note that Dostoevsky is here dismissive of Nekrasov's poem. Like, as much as it is, like, a classic example of, of pathetic, not meant in the, you know, sad, but in the pathos sense, pathetic poetry, it is, you know, all filled with these ideas of the beautiful and the sublime in typical romantic fashion. Notice that as much as the narrator gives us this long, heartfelt passage, he concludes it with etc., etc., etc. Like, all of it is commonplace. All of it is mere literary flourish all of it is empty in some respect which is all the more significant given what the you know romanticism of our narrator here is going to actually boil down to um as musters were told and suddenly you hid your face in trembling hands and filled with horror filled with shame dissolved in tears indignant as you were and shaken eh, whatever like this is not meant to matter. This is meant to, on the one hand, invoke this world of the 1840s, this world of high-minded ideals and romantic thoughts and, you know, these writers waxing bombastic about all of this beautiful and sublime suffering. All of this, too, should be noted as just blasé, banal commonplaces. Like, our underground man is, in some respect, aligned with Chernyshevsky here. Insofar as Chernyshevsky also had no patience for this romantic crap. Just as Bazarov doesn't have any patience for this romantic crap. This is all sentimentality, they would say. And again, the narrator picks up on this thread even as he's doing it himself. So, we are immediately plunged into the 1840s here. And the references are just going to come faster and harder the further we go into this text. Um, so the first problem, because, like, we essentially have three or four different kind of episodes here. Um, the first that we run into is the underground man's uh, troubles with the lieutenant. Like, apparently he, like, was walking morose past a bar and saw some dude getting chucked out a window and was like, man, I wish I had adventures like getting chucked out of a window. So he goes into the bar and he, like situates himself in the way of people and hopes to get chucked out of a window but doesn't actually do anything to like offend anyone and eventually this lieutenant who's like playing billiards and, and you know this underground man is just standing in the way like awkwardly um the guy just presumably because he's a little drunk or maybe just because you know he's shown off to his friends or whatever just literally picks him up puts him to the side and then continues about his business and our narrator who of course is like crazy vain is so offended by this like, it's, on the one hand, incredibly offensive to just be picked up and moved somewhere. Like, he would be warranted if he did, in fact, challenge this guy to a duel. But at the same time, it just is so reductive. Like, it's so stupid that he can't bring himself to make it into a big deal, nor is he courageous enough to make it into a big deal. So instead, he apparently just stalks this guy. Like, for weeks, he's just following him around, like, intentionally, you know, figuring out his habits, figuring out where he lives. Like, 
even I'd say weeks, but honestly, it sounds like years the way that he talks about it. And finally, like he gets up the the idea that he's going to bump into him, like they're going to you know walk directly at one another. And where usually in Russian society, like the person who's you know in poorer status, who's lower ranked, like gets out of the way of whoever the big functionary is, whoever the big dignitary is. This guy's apparently going to like meet him as equals like not you know run him down or push him over honestly he can't do that the lieutenant is apparently like twice as big as he is but he just wants to like bump into him so that neither of them give way and this is the big plot this is the big drama of the first section um now on the one hand i should stress this is ridiculous like silly ridiculous comedic ridiculous this absolutely reeks of the kind of low kind of like self-conscious comedy of especially somebody like nikolai gogol um and this is almost certainly a direct reference to nikolai gogol like especially when the narrator starts talking about how like he's gonna bump into him but in case it turns into something he needs to be well dressed for it so he has to like sell his stupid bad ratty raccoon collar and instead buy like the crappy kind of german beaver collar which goes shabby really fast but he only needs it for a little while like in order to do this so he it's worth the cost on this one so he like saves up his money and he's like asking for an advance on his salary and finally like buys this beaver collar and then is ready to go like this is straight out of gogol gogol's uh short story the overcoat is kind of a huge deal in literary circles and it is an even huger deal in russian literary circles um it is widely regarded as the first short story like ever apparently i don't know why this is the case like i'm not entirely sure what the logic is behind it most of the time it has to do with like oh it's realistic and therefore you know more in line with the contemporary notion of the psychological short all right fine whatever like obviously folktales and you know like even written forms of folktales predate gogol by quite a bit um when it comes to asking questions like where did the first short story come from you'll get different answers from different people like it's silly um but at any rate the overcoat is widely considered this really big moment in russian literature especially not only does it usher in like an entirely new literary form this sort of psychological or you know social commentary realistic you know story of a certain length um but it also is kind of a big deal because gogol up until this point had been a classic romantic writer um like most of his early publications are actually like fairy tales um gogol has a huge collection of fairy tales that he's sort of like collected from around the russian countryside and he brings his particular gogolian spin to it like he loves you know a kind of wry humor or dark satire um and if you read some of his his folk tales his his russian fairy tales they are just wonderful just delightful to read um but Gogol has a number of stories that he sets in Petersburg and Moscow as well, like the city stories. Like, his career can usually be divided into these two halves if you, you know, disregard dead souls. Um, and the overcoat is sort of the best and the most paradigmatic of the bunch. And the story is about this guy who is literally obsessing over his overcoat, who is so concerned with his dress and gets so upset when his overcoat is destroyed. Like after saving up all of his money and like putting all of this effort into getting it, then all of a sudden, like the coat is destroyed and he like loses his mind. Um, which again, Google is particularly fond of writing about like diary of a madman is also a great deal of fun if you can look past the sort of uh disregard for mental illness that's going on there um but anyway what i want to stress here is that dostoevsky one loved gogol like 
in his biography, in, in multiple letters, he talks about how, like, he and his friends back in the 1840s would literally just sit around reading Gogol. Like, they would just read a certain passage or read, like, an entire story or even, like, entire chapters of Dead Souls all at once. And this was, like, high entertainment for them. Like, this was as good as it gets. Um, like, Dostoevsky practically worshipped Gogol. Like, I think that Dostoevsky, if asked, especially at this point in his career, would probably still put Pushkin above Gogol, but it's not by much. And you can see pretty obviously that Dostoevsky is ideologically influenced by Pushkin, but stylistically influenced by Gogol way more. Like, he has Gogol's uh, same wry sense of humor. He has Gogol's interest in, like, the, the sort of mad self-consciousness, the, the extremes of, of, like, obsessiveness that people get into, as well as Gogol's unflinching morality. Like, Gogol's bitter sort of comments on, you know, society in his own time. So, seeing this section as a reference to the overcoat should definitely be on our minds here. This is classic Gogol, this is cl a classic Gogolian hero, self-conscious, you know, insignificant, and yet, like, bitter about it and, and very angry. Um, like, I don't think that it's, that our narrator is, in fact, a collegiate assessor. Like, this is the rank that Gogol sort of turned into, like, the, like, most boring middle manager of middle managers. Um... But at the same point, he's not far removed. If anything, he's lower on the on the totem pole than our collegiate assessor from Gogol. Um, but the other thing that we should obviously be thinking about here is Chernyshevsky. Like, as much as, again, Gogol's The Overcoat is, is sort of like the obvious literary reference point here, remember, we had this scene in Chernyshevsky. Like, I forget whether it was Kursanov or Lopukov. Um, again, you know, Chernyshevsky doesn't, like, label this stuff as much, and I wasn't taking uh, significant notes. Um, we have a scene where one of these two great men, right-thinking men, decides he's not going to give way to people anymore. Um, like, he's just going to walk in the street, and if people refuse to get out of his way, then he's going to bump right into them. Um, and notice that in Chernyshevsky, this is just absolute. Like, of course, it's absolute. Like, Lopukov or, or uh, Kursanov, they are right-thinking men, they are confident, they are not subject to emotion, they are not vain, they are just selfish in the egotistical sense that, that like, Chernyshevsky is supporting here. This is part of their ideological convictions. And consequently, when they say, okay, I'm not going to make way for anyone, then they just dolt. There's none of this hedging that we see here in Notes from Underground. They just charge right into the first dignitary who comes their way. And importantly, like, we get a confrontation there. Like, we get, you know, some ambassador or something turns around and is like, hey, what are you doing? And apparently, like, we don't get the actual fight, but we get that this person immediately, like, immediately gets chucked into the mud. Like just face plants into the mud and that's it which it's noteworthy that that's the case in Chernyshevsky like again we didn't dwell on this when we were reading Chernyshevsky because there was plenty of other stuff to pay attention to um but I want to stress this is one of those moments where Chernyshevsky seems especially unrealistic um like something would have come of this if, in fact, there was a fight between some random student-slash-scholar, some random doctor at some low rank in the Russian hierarchy, and some general or lieutenant or really high-ranking official with his vanity got offended in this way, there would have been fallout. The police would have been involved. There would have been a scandal, as Dostoevsky would have liked to put it. Um... 
the fact that it ends with our hero Lopukov or Kursanov triumphant, like it ends as though it was not even worth talking about, that the whole thing was just one tiny episode in a life full of much greater things to pay attention to, that itself is suspicious. Um, it is exactly the sort of narrative inconsistency or, or failure to see reality that I kind of harped on throughout our reading of Chernyshevsky. It's ideologically appropriate, like everything about this episode strengthens the audience's opinion of Lopukov or Kursanov, of these two men who are deliberate and selfish and egoistical, and it supports their ideology. But the truth would support something else. The truth would be this person would be harassed for days to come by, you know, legal demands and possibly by, like, a, a you know, slap to the face, a duel, a scandal. Um, the truth is they probably would have lost credibility, lost customers, especially as independent doctors or businessmen. Um, there would have been consequences here. And importantly, our character, our narrator, our underground man is keenly aware of these consequences to the point of the other extreme. Because the fact of the matter is, he's not doing something as imposing as Lopukov or Kursanov does. Like, he is literally just bumping into a lieutenant. Like, he's not taking pot shots at a general. He's not, you know, bumping into some emissary or dignitary or ambassador. It's some random lieutenant who he met in a bar once. Um, now, admittedly, everything about this is overblown. Like, again, to talk about it this way is to totally undermine the ridiculousness of the situation. Like, I am acting like it is serious because I'm trying to explain it. And this is effectively the same as trying to explain a joke. Um... It's nonsense that the narrator wants to, you know, get this lieutenant back for this one altercation that wasn't even an altercation in a bar at one point. Like, there's even, you know, this moment where he's like, I'm going to write a letter to him, and then he writes this elaborate, carefully written letter, and then he fails to send it because, of course, he, it would be ridiculous. It happened years ago at this point, and the lieutenant has almost certainly forgot about it if he even acknowledged it when it was happening. So all this comes to nothing. It is all absurd. It is all pure vanity. And I want to stress, that's Dostoevsky's point here. Like, Lopukov and Kursanov are egoists. And somehow, in Chernyshevsky's mind, you can separate one's ego from one's vanity. And for Dostoevsky, that is just straight up not possible. Like, that's not how human beings work. Or at the very least, what Dostoevsky is showing us here is that it is not, it may be possible for some, but for half the people who are reading these books, it is not possible for them. They are coming into the world thinking, I am more intelligent than everyone else around me, where for Lopukov and Kursanov, this is apparently true, and for them, it's not. They're just putting on airs. They're just reading this stuff, feeling compelled by it, and therefore moved to live their lives the way that Lopukov and Kursanov do, even though they don't have the mental, mental fortitude for it, even though they don't have the in intellect for it, even though they don't have the you know, practical ability for it. The underground man is more typical of Dostoevsky's kind of hero, more typical of this sort of lesser person. Which is not to say that Dostoevsky believes that there are lesser and greater people. That's not what I'm trying to say here. Only that there are definitely going to be people reading Chernyshevsky, thinking they can do this, and coming out like this underground man instead. But we should also remember, this is an 1840s character. 
This is a romantic hero, a self-conscious hero, someone more in line with the likes of Goethe's Werther than Lopukhov or Kursanov and Chernyshevsky. Um, Werther isn't some kind of, you know, demigod among men. Like, as much as many interpreters of Goethe make him out to be that way, like, equate Werther with the likes of Faust, who really is characterized as somehow being greater than everyone ar around him, Werther is just so self-conscious to the point of paralysis in many cases. And you'll note that the style that Dostoevsky employs here in Notes from Underground is pretty closely aligned with the kind of, you know, agrammatical, rushed, passionate, like, uh, confessions and, and, and description that we find in something like Goethe's Werther. Um, this is the same sort of romantic rush that we are seeing from many of Dostoevsky's romantic inspirations, many of the writers that were considered so important in the 1840s. As much as Chernyshevsky takes this scene and places it in the 1860s, Dostoevsky is in many ways right to put it more in the 1840s. But by putting it there, he changes the hero as well. We see a difference between the realistic, totally rational, totally pragmatic, utterly you know detached from their own vanity, but utterly immersed in their own egoism characters from Chernyshevsky, and now we see instead these sort of totally vain, totally preening, you know, romantically inclined, sentimental heroes of the 1840s, someone closer to a Byronic hero, um, even if a satirical Byronic hero. Um, so all this to say, like, after all of this hoopla, after all of this fanfare, the narrator does, in fact, after many, many efforts and many failed efforts, like, frequently he meets this lieutenant and just gets the heck out of his way and, like, curses himself afterwards for being a coward. Eventually, he finally, like, randomly gets the courage to do this. He bumps into him. Nothing happens. That's the end of the story. Again, all of this for nothing. That's very much the emphasis here. And notice, like, that's, again, Dostoevsky's point, that while this kind of episode for Lopukhov and Kursanov serve as an opportunity for Chernyshevsky to celebrate and raise them up against their peers, Dostoevsky is very much stressing, why? Why do you care so much? Why is this so important? How can you be a so-called not-vain egoist and yet take this issue so seriously? See this as heroic behavior? Um... Chernyshevsky is being interrogated here. Um, Chernyshevsky's characters are being sort of exposed here. That on the one hand, they claim to be egoists, not vain. On the other hand, this whole confrontation, this whole episode is so small and so petty and so banal that it can't help but be vain. Like, it can't help but be just scratching one's own ego. Um, and not in the sense of, like, advancing one's career or making one into a better person the way that Chernyshevsky's heroes usually talk, but literally in the most small and meaningless ways. It's just about making you feel better in public when you run into people who have higher ranks than you. For Chernyshevsky, this is an act of revolution. This is an act of rebellion. This is the kind of thing that he talks carefully about because he doesn't want to get censored. But for Dostoevsky, this is dumb. This is stupid. Get out of the way. 
what does it matter? Let him have his stupid vanity. Let this, you know, general sit on his heirs. How much does it actually hurt you? How selfish are you really when you, in fact, make a big stink out of this? Which brings us to the next scene. Like, apparently, after this whole episode goes down, and this is probably the weakest of the, of the links between our sections here, our underground man decides to go seek out some friends... Um, he does this sometimes. We're told that this happens like every couple of years or so. Like he gets, you know, the ache to, you know, visit with someone. And he's got like one person, Simonov, who he's still, you know, in contact with. One of his old school friends. Like this is the only friend he has effectively. And we even are treated to this discussion of how he once made this other friend. But then he like lorded it over him and like crushed him under his will. And then like didn't care about him anymore. Like we go full Sartre and existentialism reading of you know friendship and relationships here which Dostoevsky is again pretty pretty incredible to anticipate uh but it nonetheless comes off as again being stupid and cruel and also silly and ridiculous and petty and banal um as much as you know Dostoevsky is taking pot shots at Chernyshevsky primarily here you'll notice that he's also taking pot shots at the romantics um, as much as this is, you know, supposedly a story that is criticizing Chernyshevsky down to his bones, you'll notice that he's doing it at the same time as he criticizes the vanity and the self-consciousness and the, you know, grandiose, like, exaggeration of all of the romantics that came before. For Dostoevsky, they are one of a kind here. The same, you know, grandiosity that Chernyshevsky brings to this guy who's willing to, like, bump into people on the street is now sort of exposed as being a romantic fiction. Like, as much as Chernyshevsky would hate to be compared to the romantics, as much as this would be absolutely anathema to him, Dostoevsky is making a pretty clear connection by pointing to Gogol, by pointing to, you know, Chernyshevsky, by pointing to this typically romantic like uh perspective he is linking them and very much criticizing chernyshevsky on his own ground on his own terms um which is pretty impressive to see but you'll notice that this evolves once we get more people into the mix like simonov as much as he sort of tolerates the underground man's presence does not seem to respect him and for good reason, because this guy apparently, like, disappears all the time. Like, Simonov says on multiple occasions, how is one supposed to find you? Um, like, apparently the, the narrator is living in this hole, this apartment, and he doesn't share his, his information with anyone because he doesn't want visitors. Like, we're told later that it is his shell. It is, it is his protection against the world. Um, as much as he hates having to deal with his servant, he refuses to move because to take on furnished rooms would be to possibly, you know, have other lodgers possibly have to deal with other people living in the same space and he refuses to do this he's too poor to live in proper apartments for all by himself but at the same time he is far too vain far too proud and apparently far too cowardly far too introverted to possibly you know set himself up to live with others so Clearly, Simonov and all of these, you know, former school friends, he is keeping at a distance, and very deliberately. He wants, you know, their companionship, but 
obviously, as we're told with his episode with the other friend, he only wants it on his terms. This is entirely petty, again, like, very vain. It is all about him, all about his power, his selfishness. And again, we should be asking questions about how this selfishness maps onto Chernyshevsky. Like, how Chernyshevsky's heroes will deliberately cultivate friendships for their own pleasure, for their own ego, and consider this something good, where Dostoevsky is like, how is that not vanity in much the same way? But what ultimately shakes out with Simonov is that he has come at an inauspicious or really auspicious time. Apparently Simonov, along with some of their mutual friends, like former mutual friends, are planning a party for Zverkov, like another, you know, person who the underground man is familiar with, but also this person who he has, like, distaste for. Like, they had some kind of altercation back during their school years. The dude is pompous and, you know, vain and, again, like, all the things that the underground man is. But at the same time, like, they just... He's not intellectual the way that the underground man fancies, fancies himself to be. So, like... On the one hand, this whole, like, plan for the, the party for Zverkov is playing out literally in front of the underground man, and all that he can think about is, like, how gross and messed up Zverkov is and how much he resents him. But at the end of the conversation, like, they're like, okay, we're done with our plans, we'll, we'll get, you know, our other friends together, like, for Fitchkin, and we'll, we'll go in, and it'll be, like, three of us, so seven rubles apiece. And the narrator is like, wait, what about me? You've got to include me, he's my friend too. And Simonov is... Like, I think we're, that's one of the lines where it's like he glared at me like I was a fly. Which, again, he is. Like, you haven't seen this person in years. He only shows up on his own terms, comes out of the blue, is obnoxious to talk to, is so painfully vain all of the time, and Simonov does not want him at this party. Like, even his guest is like, but it's really just for us, you know, because we are his friends. We are the, this is the group. Um, and here is the underground man imposing himself on them, even though he doesn't want to, even though he hates this person, but just because it would be, you know, a, a blow to his vanity if he wasn't invited. Um, so naturally he gets the invitation, he gets the in information, he shows up, turns out they changed the time, and they didn't tell him because they didn't know how to tell him. Again, you get the sense that Simonov didn't make the effort very much, but at the same time, like, what are you supposed to do? This guy has absolutely insulated himself from the rest of the world. Like, you can't blame me for not contacting you if you had your phone off all day. Like... So instead, he's just sitting at the bar, waiting, utterly miserable for an entire hour, getting ready to be, like, really indignant and upset, and then, but ultimately being so awkward and embarrassed that he's just, like, happy when they finally show up. Zverkov is, of course, just as preening and vain as we expected. And on the one hand, like... Alright, so let's, let's back up from this a little bit. Like, obviously the scene goes horribly. Um, like, not only does the underground man, like, offend everyone at the group, like, even challenges for Fitchkin to a duel at one point, even though there's, like, no chance of that ever actually coming about, it ends up with the truly absurd scene where, like, all of the people who were intended to invite, at, or to be invited at the party are, like, sitting around the fire, exchanging stories, while the underground man literally just paces Paces back and forth, totally unacknowledged by anyone else, just seething in his resentment and bitterness, saying nothing, being not being talked to, until finally, like, everyone gets ready to leave, at which point he insists on joining them yet again. Now, first and foremost, like, again, this is 
probably meant to be satirical. It Like many people have told me how ridiculous, how silly, how funny this is. And I'll grant, again, that's what Dostoevsky's doing here. It's straight up satire. But I also gotta say, like, I read this and I cringe every time. And not in the fun way. Like, because I was that guy sometimes. Like, there were definitely parties where I would show up and not necessarily be a jerk and insult everyone and pace back and forth, but just to be sitting there not engaged with anybody else, like, totally doing my own thing and feeling miserable. Um, and making everybody else miserable to boot. Um, I remember being a teenager and that was my M.O. And to this day, I am still awkward at parties. I still do not know how to comport myself at these things. To some degree, I read this passage and I am reminded of all of these unpleasant and painful memories. And that, I suspect, isn't necessarily what Dostoevsky is going for. Um, like, as much as this is accurate, true to life, like, it definitely speaks to my experiences as a wildly introverted and very, you know, self-conscious person, we are probably meant to see this as a failure in behavior. And even if we do identify this, this should be calling us out more than anything else. This should be, you know, encouraging us to, to be better. Um, than just, you know, making everybody miserable. At the very least, you can do what I do and just not go to parties anymore. Um, figure out how to, you know, be a socially responsible person while also, you know, not being utterly unpleasant to be around. Um, it is a difficult balance for someone as introverted as I am, but nonetheless, it is a thing that grown-ups have to learn to do. Um, but the other thing that I should note is that, again, as much as this may be painful for some, we and as much as we are supposed to read this as some kind of satire, we should also note what exactly the polemical purpose behind this is. Um, and this, I think, is less obvious, except from the fact that, again, I have been sitting in the underground man's like shoes on this one. I know how this dynamic works, and I suspect Dostoevsky is tapping into it. I suspect what Dostoevsky is doing is actually note or criticizing Chernyshevsky's notions about parties. Um, because you'll remember, like, Chernyshevsky has a lot of parties. Um, as much as they aren't important and he doesn't dwell on them very much, frequently all of his characters will get together, and it almost always goes down the same way. Namely, all the guys get together in one area, and they all talk about, like, the revolution or big intellectual topics. They talk about agriculture or they talk about, you know, medicine or they talk about, I don't know, like, they don't talk about literature because, of course, that is beneath them. But broadly speaking, they just sit there and they talk shop. Um, and meanwhile, the women go and do women's stuff, question mark. Again, Chernyshevsky doesn't seem terribly interested in what the women do. Like, he points to this is what the men are doing. The women don't have any truck with it, but they get along just fine because everybody does what they want anyway. What I want to stress, though, is that what Dostoevsky is doing here is kind of undermining the possibility of such a party. Like, I've had those parties, don't get me wrong. Um, I have had, like, meetings with friends where a couple of people will get together and end up talking shop. Like, I'm a teacher, so oftentimes I gravitate to other teachers, and we end up having the teacher conversation. What are students like these days? You know, um, what, what is the difference between the grade levels that we're talking about? How do you get students to do X, Y, Z? Like, this is frequently how conversations with me boil down to, because again, I'm so bad at small talk. Um, but what we're talking about with, especially with Chernyshevsky, is something even higher than that. Something like, you know, three people sitting there talking about the, the newest advances in, in this periodical that apparently everybody is reading um, because it is important and because it is practical and because it is, you know, intellectually stimulating. 
But notice that Dostoevsky is keenly showing us that that's not how parties work. Like, as much as I usually end up gravitating towards the teachers and we end up sh doing shop talk at parties, I have also had my fair share of parties where somebody, like, drags me out and it's like, hey, look at my trailer, or, you know, look at this grill that I just bought, or, you know, like, they end up talking about, you know, the, the various problems associated with their mortgages, or, you know, the, like, the troubles that they've had getting into their housing situation, um, which is a natural, uh, like, kind of lowest common denominator for people at a certain income level or people you know who have the similar interests you know i've been at parties where the the talk turns to discussing football or discussing you know current events though carefully because so many of them are politically charged nowadays in short people don't want to talk about ancient greek philosophy or you know literature the way that i want to talk about those things and as much as you know when it comes up i definitely take my opportunity to talk i am also very conscious that i don't want to like dominate the proceedings because again this is a party, not a lecture. I'm not supposed to sit there and talk. I'm actually kind of super self-conscious about it all the time when I'm at major social functions like this. So what we are seeing here, what Dostoevsky is showing us is the underground man, like me, ready to talk about all of these erudite and informed and intellectual pursuits, ready to talk about the beautiful and the sublime, feeling this, this overwhelming connection to the big ideas of humanity at large, and of course that's not what people at the party want to talk about. They want to reminisce about old times. They want to talk about the, you know, the scandals in the papers. They want to talk about the prospects for Zverkov now that he is getting promoted and, and moving away. They want to talk about his his sexual conquests they want the the you know gossip and the the silly information and while they do bring up shakespeare and notice this is the one time that the narrator like kind of intrudes all that they do is they trade platitudes he is immortal he is the greatest of all of the poets at which point the narrator just like scoffs at them and they kind of notice that he does and then go right back to talking like it, he's not even there and i want to emphasize this scene is significant because if Chernyshevsky's protagonists are as intellectual and practical as they seem to be, Dostoevsky is showing us that they do not function outside of their own circles, outside of their own social milieu. Like, as much as Chernyshevsky divides the world into the good people and the not-so-good people, the, the, you know, uninformed people, the silly or stupid or boring people, that's not a choice that you as an adult get to make when you are interacting with human beings. Um, when you are at a social function, when you are in mixed company, when you do not have complete control over the guest list, when you are at a wedding or at a funeral, you are there, not as in your intellectual capacity, not among people who share all of your interests, but you are there because you have to be there and you're going to have to deal with the fact that everyone else is not interested in what you're interested in, and vice versa. And you've got options at that point. Like, yeah, you can try and, you know, commandeer the conversation, steer it around to something you want to talk about, in which case you will annoy, irritate, and alienate everybody around you. Or you can sit there and, you know, fake interest, which works reasonably well and is relatively not stressful, but really the proper solution here is to actually take an interest in other people, to actually make the effort to understand why they like, why they want you to like the things that they want to talk about, to learn something in short. Um, and again, I'm not saying that this is the silver bullet solution. This is a better solution for me than f most of the other options, because again, I'm just 
chronically awkward and terrible at small talk. But what we are seeing here in this scene is not a conversation between equally minded intellectuals discussing the most important issues of the day. We are seeing friends from a variety of backgrounds coming together to celebrate this one person who they all have in common. And to some degree, they want to be there. They want to celebrate this person. They are earnestly engaged in this person's life and activities. I.e., they are putting aside their selfishness for a moment. And the underground man cannot do the same. He is irreversibly locked in his own perspective, his own interests, to the point of disregarding and being actively, even hostilely disinterested in everything that is going on around him. It is all beneath him, he thinks, and yet he so desperately wants to be part of it. And there's something grotesque about this. But at the same time, it is very telling about the kind of thing that Chernyshevsky is expecting. Dostoevsky is criticizing Chernyshevsky's understanding of social relationships here. He is showing us that parties are not about forwarding the cause. They are frequently just about people. And if you do not see people except as means to ends, if you do not see people as repositories for an ideology that can or cannot advance humanity, then you are not going to be able to engage or understand or even interact with those people. The characters in, Dust in the party here, Zverkov, Simonov, Ferfichkin, they are not either romantics of the 1840s or radicals of the 1860s or nihilists of the 1860s. They're just people, like civilians, sitting on the sidelines of all of this literary back and forth. Like, as much as we have characterized carefully our different groups, we should also note that they describe altogether a very narrow portion of the population. Only that group of people who are writing and literary in Russian society. The average Russian is far more concerned with where their next meal is coming from, or where their next promotion is going to come from, or how exactly they're going to, you know, get one over on their rival, or how they're going to, you know, achieve some kind of romantic conquest. This is the stuff that unites everybody, even our narrator, even when he doesn't want to admit it. This is what drives human beings in all times and places. And Dostoevsky is good enough to remind us of that here. That as much as this party is banal, it is dumb, it's even kind of gross at some points, it is honest. They are there for good reasons. They want to spend time with one another, and this is the driving force behind this party, and the narrator cannot plug into that. He is incapable, either through his consciousness or his vanity or his selfishness or any of the things that any of Chernyshevsky's characters would have considered a virtue. Chernyshevsky is living in a fantasy world, Dostoevsky is showing us. And there are so many people who not only do not care, but are so little invested, are so anti-hostile or totally indifferent to what's going on, that Chernyshevsky is never going to make progress as long as he keeps ignoring them. They are too many of us, too much of the population, too much of Russian society. This is what a party is supposed to look like, Dostoevsky is showing us. 
And Dostoevsky doesn't even do a great job with describing parties. Like, if you want to see, like, a true Russian soiree described at, at its absolute peak, like, go read War and Peace, go read Anna Karenina. Tolstoy knows that stuff cold. He can absolutely show you a party running the way that it's supposed to or going off the rails or any combination of the two. For Dostoevsky, it is more a matter of, like, these small, kind of intimate get-togethers that, like, get confusing and frequently tempers get raised and dramatic, scandalous things happen at them. Which, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. If anything, I think Dostoevsky is more aware of, like, the granular element of these social gatherings. Um, but Tolstoy gets the, the thrust of the things. He gets how meaningful it is to so many people. For Dostoevsky, he's kind of always on the outside to some degree, like our narrator. He is always observing from a high-up perspective. And I suspect that part of this is because he doesn't go to many of these parties, honestly. Um, like, as much as he is an editor, he has responsibilities. He's probably, you know, going to the same weddings and funerals and, you know, get-togethers for school friends or, you know, celebrations of various literary accomplishments. Like, he's not in high society, and he's not being invited into high society very often. Like, there are multiple accounts of, you know, he would, like, start tutoring and get involved in that family or one thing or another, but notice that... Like most of his protagonists, he is almost always an outsider. He is almost always a guest. Um, look through his entire, you know, body of work. All of his protagonists, all of his main characters are young men who are outsiders to the social circles that they are sort of generously included into, um, and therefore never able to quite achieve the level of intimacy that they are hoping for. But, once again, we should also be looking at the references here. Because, again, our narrator does work himself up to the point that he challenges for Fitchkin to a duel, and as everybody is, like, going off to the brothel to sort of finish off the evening, he goes full-fledged, like, I am going to slap Zverkov's face, I'm going to challenge him to a duel, and then I'm going to, like, nobly shoot my shot into the air, um, and forgive everybody, and everybody will be so moved by the profundity of my emotions and my feeling, and finally they will see that I am the superior man, etc., 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 you know, like with Nekrasov. Um, all of this is, like, he even notes is from Pushkin's The Shot or from Lermontov's Masquerade, both of which are these classic romantic texts about a guy who, you know, feels so strongly that he challenges somebody to a duel but then is overcome by his own emotion and his own you know, feeling for humanity and his own sort of compassion for this other person, that they, they end up, like, renouncing their anger and their rage and ultimately, like, everything ends happily. Which, notice that the narrator is conflicted about this. Like, that he, he actually stops the coach at one point. He just, like, sits there waiting while the coachman is like, what the heck are you doing, dude? Um, he can't decide because he recognizes how stupid, how sentimental how ridiculously romantic this whole notion is of going to challenge Zverkov to a duel like Zverkov doesn't care Zverkov isn't offended he's just wishes that this person would go away and let them enjoy the rest of the night in peace um and yet the underground man refuses to let that happen must address must you know acknowledge his vanity like as much as again i am the worst at parties and was even worse when i was in high school and in college 
I gotta say, it never got quite that bad. Like, I never inflicted myself on someone. If I recognized that I wasn't having a good time and I was bringing everybody else down, I, would, I was just leaving. Like, bye. Uh, you know, if, if we can't do this, then that's fine. Like, let's move on, try again some other time. Um, but the narrator refuses to let this go. It has to be addressed. His superiority, his vanity must be recognized. So he goes and he gets ready to perform this duel. And he does so all with this, again, elevated, like, exaggerated, romantic, t like, notions. Again, slapping Zverkov doesn't mean he's going to necessarily accept the duel. In all likelihood, based on the circumstances, Zverkov's like leaving in the morning. He doesn't want to deal with this crap. Like, yeah, he'll fight the duel if he has to because he has to prove that he's not a coward, but that's the only reason anyone is taking him seriously. Like, that's the only reason that Ferfichkin accepts the terms of the duel. Because it's like, oh, so you really want to fight? Okay, I'll fight you. Like, what do I care? You know, I'm not a coward, but at the end of the day, nothing's going to come of this because you are. Like, the underground man knows that he is not strong enough to deal with this situation. He's failed to, like, even, you know, make trouble in the bar and get chucked out a window. Of course he's not going to fight a duel. So all of this romantic notion, all of this escalation, it kind of has the same sort of, like, relationship to our narrator as something like Don Quixote does to the whole world of, you know, romantic, like, chivalric romance. Again, we are setting it in reality. The character that we're dealing with is not the sort of high-minded ubermensch that many of our romantic heroes tend to come out to be. He is just a wildly self-conscious person, too literary, too studied for his own good, who does not know how to function in society because all of his time is spent reading this kind of book. And remember that Dostoevsky treasured these books. He loves Pushkin. He loves Gogol. Um, Lermontov, I suspect, he's a little cooler on. But at the same time, like, he absolutely respects what Lermontov is doing. He has those feelings. And in the 1840s, that's what drove him to join these anarchist circles in the first place. Like, remember that the driving force for Dostoevsky in the 1840s was not some kind of overthrowing the Tsar mission. It was to rescue the peasants from their plight. It was this high-minded romantic social agenda. This, we have a major social injustice that needs to be addressed. And it gets confused with all of the romantic posturing. Like, the greatness of his sentiments was, at the time, justified by the greatness of his cause. But looking back, as he does now, 20 years after the fact, here in the 1860s, Dostoevsky realizes he was a teenager. Like, he was just a young adult. He was overexcited. And while the cause of the peasants was good, the way that it would be solved was much more banal, much more mundane than any of the things that he thought at the time. He was ready to die, and he didn't need to, and nobody wanted him to, and the only reason that he actually wanted to do that was to appease his vanity, to prove to everyone around him that he was committed and good and, a, you know selfless, altruistic person. Here is our narrator in the same boat. His ideals are not as well recognized as Dostoevsky's were in his day. Um, but at the same time, he is not the good man he thinks he is. He is not the good man he wants to be. As much as he has these high-minded ideals, as much as, the, as he claims this knowledge of the beautiful and sublime, it isn't actually making his life better. It isn't actually impressing anyone else around him. And as much as he wants his life to be literary, 
It isn't, and it won't be, and it will never get fixed, and the only thing that he can do at this point is come to terms with it and move on with the mundanity of being an adult person. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes to the brothel, and of course, because he wasted so much time, they've already dispersed, we're told. Presumably, they've all gone to their separate rooms with their separate ladies. So, he's there alone. No Zverkov, no denouement, no big climactic, you know, confrontation, no slap, no duel, no nothing. It is a wet fart of a climax to a terrible evening. And... As consolation, and also because he's probably pretty drunk at this point, again, the wine goes to his head pretty early, like, we're told that he, you know, is going to tell everybody that he was drunk when they came in, and therefore all of his actions can be excused. This is not true, um, and he knows that it's not true, and he's even grumpier at himself because it's not true, and he was willing to lie anyway. Um, but at the end of the day, he is drunk enough. Drunk enough to make yet another bad decision, which in this case means finding a girl and in fact sleeping with her, and then shaming her. Which brings us to what is probably the most obvious connection to the romantic world here. The scenes with Liza are straight out of a romantic novel. Um, you can take George Sand, you can find this stuff in Pushkin and Lermontov, um, you can find this in a whole lot of European literature of the time, and it even culminates in the work of someone like Guy de Maupassant, which we talked about earlier in our Ethics of Literature series, like when Tolstoy is getting really uppity about Maupassant's depictions of prostitutes. We get a classic romantic setup, namely, here is our hero, enlightened and romantic and sublime and so on and so forth, meeting with this fallen woman and convincing her to give up her fallen ways by romanticizing her, by telling her about the suffering that she is going to endure, and presumably by rescuing her from her own circumstances. Like, this is the classic setup. This is what the poem from Nekrasov is all about. Um, this is what we are supposed to be thinking of at this particular moment, and you'll notice that once again, we have a Chernyshevsky connection. Once again, Dostoevsky is almost certainly pointing to Kuslova, um, or rather, uh, Kriukova, the prostitute in Chernyshevsky who, like, tries to, you know, harangue Kursanov, but then it turns out that, like, Kursanov just brings her home and doesn't have sex with her, but instead tells her that she's allowed to do whatever she wants because, you know, egoism and freedom and so on and so forth, and Kriukova, like, immediately falls in love with him and does, in fact, reform herself and joins Vera Pavlovna's, like, collective, you know, the whole cooperative thing with the dressmakers, and becomes a productive member of society before dying of tragically of tuberculosis and also of a broken heart because etc 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 she's deeply in love with Kursanov. Dostoevsky flips all of that over here. Again, the like we don't see the sex obviously. It's the 19th century. We're not allowed to write directly about this. The censors definitely would not have it. But in the post-coital gloom, so to speak, our narrator lights a match and sees that Lisa is staring at him in this way that is unpleasant to him, that insults his vanity. So he decides to avenge himself on her by talking about her circumstances, by drawing attention to, you know, the, the fleetingness of her beauty and the fact that she is, you know, likely to get sick here and that in all likelihood she'll be kicked out and, you know, buried in a, in a like, potter's grave. And he describes it in painstaking detail, true romantic detail. Like, every element of the suffering, every detail of her degradation is talked about extensively. 
in true Victor Hugo fashion or George Sand fashion. Um, we are not in Gogol or Pushkin territory anymore, maybe a little bit of Lermontov. But at the end of the day, we are, on the one hand, drawing from every romantic book and poem and illusion that this narrator has, while performing an act that would be an act of heroism in these books, but in this context, as an act of vengeance, only serves to upset Liza and to draw her into this sort of self-hatred that he feels for himself. But the real key line that I want to point out here, like after he's talking extensively about her family and, you know, wouldn't her circumstances be better if she just went back home? Like, it can't be that bad. Why, you know, why would you do this? The line that she gives him on page 98 here, it's as if you, it's as if it's from a book, she said. And again, something like mockery suddenly sounded in her voice. I was painfully twinged by this remark. It was not what I was expecting. Now, we're told by the narrator who, you know, is reminiscing and thinking about this, this is a defense mechanism on her part, that she is defending herself with mockery at the last minute because she is so vulnerable, because she has been so, you know, probed into, because Liza is, at the end of the day, trying to defend her own vanity, something that the, the underground man narrator cannot acknowledge because he is too wrapped up in his own, you know, self-awareness, his own vanity to, to be able to recognize that other people have desires. Um, but this notion that he is speaking from a book is so accurate. And because it is so accurate, it is so painful to him. This is why what started as an act of petty vengeance gets doubled down upon in the next chapter. Where first he starts by, you know, urging her like why did you choose this life why don't you go back to your father sure, surely he doesn't hate you that much surely marriage can't be that painful and he paints this picture of marriage as you know being difficult but still plausible difficult but still pleasurable again straight out of a book and she calls him out on this and he turns to different books he turns to Dickens, he turns to Hugo, he turns to the plight of the suffering prostitute, he turns to George Sand and the pitiable condition of, you know, the society today. And at the end of the day, like, he does convince her. And we notice that there's this, this sort of conflict in him. That on the one hand, it is supposed to be an act of vengeance. It is intended as a petty, mean-spirited act of destruction on this poor girl who he now feels it is necessary to avenge himself on because she has seen him at his most vulnerable, because she has seen him at his most foolish. And it turns into something heartfelt. Like, he feels himself being carried away by his words. He believes what he has to say, even as he refuses to acknowledge his belief here in the text. Like, he does in fact want better for her. Does in fact wish better on her. But this is muddled. It's confused with all this hatred and anger and rage. And when he finally does reduce Liza to, to sobs, like she's just, you know, like hysterically sobbing into her own pillow for what he's telling her he you know tries to backpedal by giving her an out by saying you know here's my address come see me when you need to an act that he then immediately regrets 
but would be the thing that he would need to do if he were in fact one of these heroes prepared to rescue her from her circumstances and you know bring her into his confidence the whole setup start to finish is classic romantic reformed prostitute stuff and yet he's not willing to go that last step like he gives her his address in the hopes that you know it will in fact like boil out to be something good but once she finally does come to his home and he's having his you know quarrel with apollon and calling him a hangman and he doesn't have any money and he definitely can't rescue her and he's so miserable himself notice that it is there it is this you know this moment where where like he's he's thinking about how he's going to save her if when in fact she comes before she does we get the second part of that necrosoft quote and now, full mistress of the place, come bold and free into my house. A passage that Dostoevsky repeats twice. First as he's, like, romantically reminiscing, and then again when she actually does show up. Though here it's sort of non-diegetic. Here it's presented as the opening to chapter 9. So we see, on the one hand, this is what he wants. It is, in fact, what he, you know, dreams of doing. It is, it is the, the, you know, proper literary end to this unliterary episode in his life. It is, once again, sentimental nonsense, but sentimental nonsense that he does, in fact, want to commit to. And it does, at the end of the day, boil down to more farce, more absurdity, and, importantly, more shame. Because when Liza does show up, like, he cries. He breaks down. He's the one who admits that, like, he only did it to her out of pettiness, that he really doesn't want her here, that, there, that there's nothing that he can do for her, and that he doesn't even necessarily regret this, but there's nothing that he wants to do for her. He just wanted to hurt her. That was the whole reason. And she responds with kindness. On the one hand, this is typical of Dostoevsky, like, the idea of the, you know, not the reformed prostitute, like, white savior style, here I am to come save you from your circumstances, the way that Nekrasov talks about it, the way that, you know, Kursanov is presented in Chernyshevsky. Instead, notice that this prostitute, instead saving the narrator, becomes a trope in its own right. The fallen woman who can save the, you know, self-conscious man becomes a character throughout Dostoevsky's work. Here we see her in Those from Underground, we'll see her again in Crime and Punishment. Um, deba debatably, there are characters working on this kind of archetype in The Idiot and, and also in The Brothers Karamazov. Like, this becomes a sort of trope in its own right, but it is a trope that Dostoevsky largely invents here. Because notice the reversal. Notice how we went from this guy who, you know, like, romantically swoops in to save the day for this woman who has fallen, who needs a savior. The same sort of ridiculous archetypal fantasy that we find in the likes of fairy stories and, and you know, medieval romances, the, these chivalric knights coming in and rescuing damsels in distress from atop their white chargers. This is the fiction that the narrator wants to believe in. But the fact is that she is better off than he is. And she acknowledges that. He acknowledges that. They both recognize this. And she lowers herself more to help him. She self-sacrifices, embraces him at the expense of her pride, at the expense of whatever vanity. Just She forgives him. 
utterly selflessly in an act that has not even a drop of the same kind of ridiculous self-conscious vanity that our narrator has been utterly unable to get out of this entire book. And the narrator repays her by paying her for the service. A last act of vengeance, a last petty attempt to, you know, curse or drive her off or insult her or restore some semblance of, of pride and vanity to his, you know, self-injured soul. And she, of course, does not accept it, and she leaves, and he never sees her again. And there's a lot to take away from this. Like, ultimately, the one thing that we should definitely note, like, before we go any farther, is that he sees this as an act of, like, kindness. Like, the final move on the path, on the part of our narrator, like, upon doing this to, to Liza, um, is, is to sort of reframe it to see himself as benef like, benefiting her in a kind of backward, self-conscious way. Like, second to last page of the book, page 128, And won't it be better, yes, better, I fancied later, back at home, stifling the living pain in my heart with fantasies. Won't it be better if she now carries an insult away with her forever? An insult, but this is purification. It's the most stinging and painful consciousness. By tomorrow, I'd have already dirtied her soul with myself and worn out, oh, worn out her heart. But now the insult will never die in her, and however vile the dirt that awaits her, the insult will elevate and purify her through hatred, hmm, maybe also for forgiveness though by the way will all that make it any easier for her like notice the narrator totally bamboozles himself in this case like let's take this from his perspective first and then from hers and just a sort of more objective take from start to finish he has been totally concerned with just himself um, he started by insulting her by, you know, telling her about her circumstances when they were together in bed. Um, she comes to his door and she, he insults her again even because she is nice to him, because she self-sacrifices, because he sees that by self-sacrificing she is at the end of the day get one, getting one over on him in some, you know, deeper moral sense and consequently he can't stand that so he has to, like, reduce it to something gross and grotesque. Like, see her act of sacrifices itself being part of the services she provides as a prostitute all of this for him has been about restoring his vanity even as he further destroys it with every move he is so incredibly self-destructive so contradictory in his actions like as much as he does have the opportunity to like raise himself up and her up by doing something for her but refuses to because at the end of the day he just wants to be left alone damn it all of this at the end of the day just comes down to more self-destruction. And he, at the end of the day, justifies it to himself by, I insulted her, and then she gets to feel elevated, feel better because she forgave me and I still insulted her and she got to be the benefactor and I got to be the, the monster. He saves himself from his own judgment by, for the first time we, like in, that we can see so far in this narrative, by glossing over what he has done to her by refusing to acknowledge the, the depravity that he has committed the evil that he has done like he has been a monster throughout we have not seen any evidence that he is not 
a, that he is not a monster. Like, it's everywhere. He ruins Zverkov's party. He, you know, holds this vicious grudge against the lieutenant. And then he insults Liza not once but twice, possibly more. All of this, he does not acknowledge. The, the actual, like, ultimate consequences of his actions are something he cannot see. Either because he refuses to, or because he drowns it in his own sort of squawking vanity, his own self-consciousness. Like, self-consciousness for him has become, as much as it is tormenting him, it is a kind of defense mechanism. He thinks about himself so completely that he refuses to acknowledge the evil he's doing to actual people around him. Which brings us to that second perspective, Liza's. Because Liza does not feel better because she is insulted. She does not feel better because she, you know, altruistically helped this person. She's just trying to do something nice. Trying to be a decent person to this other person. And it's not like the underground man doesn't have this instinct. We've seen it multiple times. Um, he, you know, expresses to Liza that he wants to save her. And there is some part of him that gets carried away that does in fact feel for this, that does in fact want this. There's nothing ignoble about that desire, except in so far as it is selfish and, you know, ultimately not something he's willing to follow up on. But for her, she is hurt, like actually legitimately hurt, damaged, made less, you know, insulted. And he justifies this by saying, if I was insulted, then I could feel justified about being insulted, which is itself a lie. We've seen that a thousand times. But he makes himself into her benefactor as her insulter, which is just so vicious, so rotten, so small and mean and cruel. Whereas what Liza has done is the solution here. Like, Dostoevsky has painted us this picture of this madman. And so many writers, so many thinkers have held this up as the way that, you know, contemporary man is. Um, and even I, like, in our discussion, compare myself to the underground man. Can't help but compare myself to the underground man. Because I remember those parties, because I remember that awkwardness, because I, I have those high-minded ideals and, you know, want to see everybody respect me for the person I think I am and because I want to be the benefactor of the world. But at the end of the day, I figured out pretty quick that if you're going to be the benefactor of the world, you got to start benefacting it at some point. you got to stop worrying about what it's going to look like and just do what needs to be done and sometimes it doesn't come off like i've had my fair share of times when i've tried to do something nice for somebody and it just comes out awkward and painful and makes me look bad and yeah i seethe about that stuff it makes me unhappy but i also realize that if i just keep dwelling on it if i just keep thinking that all of my efforts to do good are going to come to this then i'm not going to do anything good so i keep trying i keep making the effort and I try and get the heck out of my own way as much as I possibly can. And this is a lesson that I have learned from Dostoevsky. Possibly the greatest lesson he has to teach. Because Liza isn't stupid. She isn't some unselfconscious being. She has feelings, but she is not just a victim here. She does something. Something that the narrator is unable to do. Like, throughout this entire book, as much as the narrator has tried and tried to make stuff happen, tried to confront the lieutenant, or tried to save Liza, or whatever, he always fails to do that, and ultimately just ends up making the status quo come right back, only he's more miserable about it. 
Like, he doesn't actually confront the lieutenant. Nothing changes about his life when he does. He doesn't actually change anything by attending Zverkov's party. He doesn't restore connections to his friends. He doesn't make himself out to be noble. All he does is return himself to exactly the state of small, petty banality and vanity that everybody knew that he was in the first place. He is not able to change his own circumstances. And the one thing that does change his whole situation the one thing that connects this section to the underground man of the 1860s that we saw later is his guilt. Guilt properly felt for seriously harming and hurting Liza, seriously failing to recognize and acknowledge and accept the goodness she has to offer. And notice the two-sided critique here. Liza is doing something straight up, uncomplicatedly good. Not because out of some self-conscious desire to be the benefactor for mankind, but just because she sees a need and because she tries to help. It doesn't come off, but she doesn't necessarily need to feel bad about it. She doesn't, you know, take the money, so it's not just some selfish desire. She doesn't live with that resentment. No, she gets to leave with her conscience free because she did what she could. She tried to help him, and he would not be helped. And he has to live with the, re the recognition that he refused to be helped. That rather than accept this act of generosity from a person who might actually have been able to help him, Liza gives him this opportunity to be saved. Like, notice how this whole scene has been reversed. He invited her to his house to save her. Instead, she comes as his savior. As a person who is willing to listen to him, willing to help him, willing to, you know, hear out all of his suffering, all of his pain, willing to even maybe help him financially or to help him, like, work through all of his problems, who is willing to be a nice person to him, to break him out of his cycle of self-destructive vanity, and he turns all of that down. He refuses, and she rightly goes away, never to be seen again. He had his chance, and he failed. But our narrator comes away with thinking, I am her benefactor. He reframes this story, because he can't possibly bear to be the helpless damsel in distress being saved by, of all people, a fallen woman. Instead, he is the one who saved the fallen woman by giving her an insult that will remind her of her pride. He must, at the end of the day, remain the hero of this story. Even if it is a bitter anti-hero, even if it is resentful and vain and self-conscious, even if it is the hero who ultimately, like, just derides all of the noble ideas of, you know, Chernyshevsky on the one hand or Christianity on the other in the first half of this book. This is the moment of transformation. And this is what I think Dostoevsky is trying to stress. In the 1840s, here were all of these well-intentioned, but paranoically self-conscious, utterly incompetent, you know, well-meaning intellectuals, so stuck in their own vanity that they were unable to actually do anything good for anyone around them. A feeling that almost certainly Dostoevsky himself felt when he was stuck in prison for 10 years, trying to do some amount of good and being rejected on all sides by people whose vanity, people whose pride was in fact greater than his. Realizing his own incompetence was not welcome there. Like, he, the, you know, higher up, like, 
rich person was not able to engage with the peasants. They did not want him there. He was the outsider at the party. And because he was stuck there for eight years, he had to come to terms with that. He had to realize that if they didn't want his help, then he could not help them. And that at the end of the day, there was something more important to them about their pride than there was about their material circumstances or his efforts to elevate them out of them or his efforts to like make them intellectuals or to, to teach them to make them into some sort of evolved person. That was not what they wanted. It was not what they needed. And at the end of the day, it was just a function that Dostoevsky wanted to perform in order to assuage his own vanity. A vanity that became meaningless as soon as he realized what was going on. As soon as he picked up a Bible and realized that he was, in fact, just being good for the sake of looking good. Being seen as good. Here, Liza does something that doesn't make her look better. It just helps or tries to and if the narrator is not willing to accept that if the, then the narrator certainly can't do it himself the narrator cannot get out of his own vanity long enough to realize that he could the intellectuals of the 1840s are in the same place they were well-meaning they had all these big plans they all got shut down it was all ineffective none of these men went on to be great revolutionaries or benefactors they all just went on to become writers become you know like middle managers and businessmen they all ended up getting estates and you know trying to make their lives work even dostoevsky is guilty of this to some degree even though dostoevsky is to some degree an exception to this as well but what we get is instead more of the same Chernyshevsky, likewise, is an intellectual with big ideas and big, you know, like, grandiose notions of how he's going to help the rest of the world. And he, too, is a fool, is deluded, is not actually recognizing what people want, what people need. He is promising some sort of material gain, but at the end of the day, he is, just as the narrator is, utterly immersed in his own self-awareness. He at least has the decency to recognize that it is all ego at the end of the day, but what he fails to recognize is that it is all vanity at the end of the day. That the two are not separate. That this desire for self-aggrandizement, this desire for change, is in fact rooted in a desire to make oneself feel better. To make oneself out to be a benefactor. To feel, a, to feel accomplished in some respect. Dostoevsky is saying here these are all the same people the liberals of the 1840s they just wanted to feel better about themselves the radicals of the 1860s they just want to feel better about themselves and they feel better because they think they're doing some kind of capital g good in the world but really it is just intellectual debate it is just talking endlessly without actually accomplishing anything and the radicals, like the extreme nihilists of the, the Russian 1860s, these nihilists are, at the end of the day, just one step removed. They are one step away from what Chernyshevsky is doing, which is itself one step away from what the liberals were doing. Everything is the same here. Our notes from Underground Narrator is, at the end of the day, more aligned with the nihilists. He doesn't want some good you know, advantageous end to humanity. He doesn't want the Crystal Palace. He doesn't want anything that he can't spit at. Because the nihilists are at least honest in that respect. 
And that's why I suspect Dostoevsky respects them more, why they are represented more positively here. Because Chernyshevsky is self-deluding himself if he thinks that he's a benefactor. That's why Dostoevsky can't stand him. But the nihilists have no self-deception. They've taken the next step. They, like the underground man, have realized that all of this is just nonsense, and therefore, why not destroy it all? Yes, they are the most dangerous force in Russia at this particular time, but the key polemic of this book is not to talk about how the nihilists are dangerous. That will be saved for demons, and for crime and punishment to some degree. The key to this book is, one, to show Chernyshevsky that he is not what he thinks he is. That he is, in fact, just one more arm of Nekrasov and the 1840s liberals. And that all of his ideals are, at the end of the day, vain and selfish and dumb. And that his reality is a fiction, a dangerous fiction. A fiction that draws people into it with promises that he cannot fulfill because it portrays a society that does not exist. The options, therefore, are basically threefold. Either join with the liberals... And become the kind of, you know, pandering, self-conscious fools, uh, you know, unaware of their own effects and j just like ridiculously into their own literary world, their own, you know, small niche interests, like cut off the rest of the world like the underground man does and just tolerate the only people who are like-minded with you, in which case you're hypocrites, but at least you're happy hypocrites, I guess, or become the straight-up nihilist you know, throw all of this highfalutin intellectualism to the wind and admit that at the end of the day, you're just here for number one and that's it. That you will destroy because you want to destroy and you will, you know, build up because you want to build up. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because all of this is equally dumb. Or, and this is really what Dostoevsky is recommending, get out of your own head. The solution to all of the liberal hypocrisy, all of the nihilistic rage is the same. Get out of your own head. Start doing something with the, you know, abilities, the resources, the, the stuff around you. People need help, and not in some big, grandiose, scholastic, Marxist sense where it's like, we need to change the material circumstances by flushing out the, the dirty soil in the field. Like, no. Get rid of the intellectualizing. Get rid of the intellectualism. Get on your knees and help someone. Scrub floors, or give out money, or be a decent human being to another decent human being, like actually help someone instead of, you know, portraying yourself as this lofty individual like Kersenov does to, to Kriukova. Like, if there are people who need help and you have the means to help them, then go help them and stop making it into some intellectual game. Stop making it into something about you. If you can do philanthropy, then do philanthropy. But don't make it your life's work. Don't make it some cause that you are engaged in. Instead, just do what needs to be done. Liza is the hero here. Liza is the one who could theoretically save the underground man if he had the will to do so. But what Dostoevsky is saying is that the liberals, the Chernyshevskyites, the radicals, the nihilists, all of these people are blindly vain to the point that they cannot accept that what is wanted of them is not greatness, but smallness, self-sacrifice, the willingness to do just one nice thing for somebody else and to make to commit to it. The underground man could help Liza if he wanted to, but he refuses to. And so she tries to help him instead. 
This is more human than anything else that's going on in this book. And consequently, this is what Dostoevsky is going to prescribe for the rest of his career. This is the solution. Get out of your head and do something decent. Stop trying to appear to be noble and just do something good. The romantics were wrong. The radicals are wrong. The nihilists are wrong. Anyone engaging in this high-minded rhetoric or political, you know, machinations is to some degree wrong. The effort needs to go somewhere more direct. Go help people. That's it. That's really all it ever is. That's really all it should be. Now, Notes from Underground, as much as it is like a huge deal in contemporary circles, as much as it is this giant of 20th century literature, as much as Dostoevsky is, you know, this is probably the most discussed and controversial of Dostoevsky's works, it didn't make much of a difference in the Russian world at the time. Um, like, he had a couple of letters back and forth with some other writers who seems to have, like, gotten what he was doing there. Chernyshevsky was justly pretty angry about this book, but nobody really picked up on the subtlety of his satire here or the message he was trying to get across. Part of that is because the censors mangled it. Again, surprise, surprise. But still, like, at the end of the day, this is a sophisticated work sort of structured as a biting satire, and it kind of didn't come off. This was not the work that everybody was discussing. Saltykov Shedrin definitely wrote a rebuttal. Um, his own satirical work where, like, Dostoevsky's underground man is, like, one of the birds who is, like, just so angry that he's unable to communicate with anybody else. It's actually a pretty decent, like, rhetorical rebuttal, but it really, again, this was not the work that changed Russia. Um, Notes from Underground only got famous much later on in Russian history. Like, I want to say it's in the 1880s or 90s that a couple of critics start to sort of raise up Notes from Underground as being this important, like, vision of the future man. Um, you know, inspired by the likes of Nietzsche and the, the whole sort of, like, social Darwinist philosophy that is circulating around that time. Um, they are seeing the Underground Man as being sort of the next evolution in human consciousness, as being this sort of characteristic person for the type of person who is coming into the new the new century and on the one hand this is true again lots of people identify with this character i identify with this character this does seem to be kind of a landmark moment in literary history but this was not what dostoevsky was trying to accomplish we've talked about what dostoevsky was trying to accomplish um, it was not to make a new role model for young men the world over. It was to, like, ridicule the fact that all young men the world over have always been the same in every generation. It's just the language that changes. Um, and consequently, this book is useful. It is interesting. It is important to a contemporary mindset. Again, if this course is about, like, talking about the Russian nihilists and comparing them to the nihilists of today, the fact that I identify with the notes from Underground Narrator probably is an important thing that we should pay attention to. There are probably a lot of people who could identify with this character. Like, it's not hard to draw a straight line from the 1840s to the 1860s all the way through to contemporary incels or, you know, the, like, radicals and revolutionaries today, especially on the far right and in internet circles. Like, they're there, the connections are there to be seen if you want to see them. Um, but that's the point. It's not different. 
This is just young people being young people. This is just intellectuals being intellectuals, or over-intellectuals being over-intellectuals. This is just self-conscious people being self-conscious. This is just people, in short. Remember that the Romantic movement was a movement that was rooted in history. It was throwing back to the likes of medieval romance. It was throwing back to the ideas of courtly love. Like, it was, at the end of the day, a nostalgic movement. Which means that not only can you draw this through line from the Romantics of the 1840s to the Nihilists of today, but you can draw it all the way back, further and further, into the past. Presumably, there is not a point where humans have not been like this. This is not a characteristic of modern humans. This is not what separates the modern man from the people before. No, everyone has dealt with this. People are self-conscious. People are vain. That's the way of things. Now, admittedly, we've got a lot more sophisticated tools to cover up our own vanity, to excuse our own vanity the way that this guy, the Notes from Underground narrator, does. But that's really the only change. We're still rotten people who refuse to do the right thing because we are, you know, deluding ourselves, rationalizing it away. At the end of the day, the solution remains the same. To cut it all back and do what's right, even if it makes you look like a fool, perhaps especially if it makes you look like a fool. And to certainly not dwell on the fact that you look like a fool long enough to interfere with you being able to do good for somebody else. But this is not where the story ends, by any extent of the imagination. Um, as much as Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground may not be a big deal in the rest of our discussions, because, again, it kind of, like, didn't make a huge stir in the world of the 1860s, Dostoevsky is going to become a major player very shortly. Um, we're not going to read Crime and Punishment in its entirety, but I do need to talk about it. Um... In order to talk about the connection between all of what we've read up until this point, Chernyshevsky, Turgenev, Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, and connect it to the world of the 1870s, the very early 1870s that Dostoevsky is, when Dostoevsky is writing Demons, we gotta talk about the intermediary stuff that's going on. We gotta talk about everything that happens between 1865 and 1870. Uh, which means that the next lecture is going to be another history one, but it is also going to be deeply connected to crime and punishment specifically. So like I said, we're not reading crime and punishment, but I am going to talk about it. And we are going to talk about everything that goes on in the back half of the 1860s, because a lot happens. There's a lot of newspaper articles published, there's a lot of upheaval in the political world, much of which is going to inform Dostoevsky as he sits down to write his later works. So next time, it's another history lecture. The history of the back half of the 1860s and basically the entirety of Joseph Frank's like fourth volume of his biography of Dostoevsky, as well as talking about crime and punishment, the idiot, and just the intellectual world here in the back half of the 1860s. I look forward to talking about it with you soon.